1: That's Stamps.com. Code
2: program. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars Podcast. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks to Joshua Levine, author of The Secret History of the Blitz. Now, in my own work on the bombing of Britain, I've looked into how the Luftwaffe went from targeting RAF bases and important coastal regions like Grimsby to try and shut off that vital food supply, but in Joshua's work, he takes this one step forward to show how they started to target the morale of the British people themselves. From the Blitz on London through to Coventry and places like Hull, in fact, across the entire United Kingdom, Joshua provides us with a compelling narrative of how the Blitz unfolded across the UK, and how Britain fought back through this vital period of the Second World War.
3: September 1940 to May 1941, is that about right? Yeah. Officially, that's, that's the case. It's, it's September the 7th through to May 9th, May 10th, of, uh, 11th of May of 1941. So it's a, a period of eight and a half months. It, you know, that is the official period that's gone down. But of course, you know, there was bombing outside of this. I went to, to Cambridge uh, recently, for example, and met people who had remembered bombing in June 1940, before the Blitz had, uh, had officially begun. You know, nine people were killed there, including a girl who'd been evacuated away from London to be safe. So it's actually quite vague. the whole The whole period, even though that's officially what it was, and there's no doubt that September the seventh was the day that 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 Hermann Goering. Changed his his focus from bombing the airfields and and, and the Battle of Britain to uh, bombing the cities. The fact is that people died outside of this period, so you know you can't necessarily say the Blitz ran from day X to day Y.
4: Okay, but that's we we ha- they've had to give it some official date, so that's that's a good a good place to start. It's a now, good. Now, why did the Blitz begin? So we let, let's just say France falls to Nazi Germany in the early summer nineteen forty. Britain stands alone. Churchill refuses to either surrender or make peace with the Germans. The Germans attempt to knock Britain out of the war. That, I think that's an important phrase, isn't it? It's not necessarily invade. It's not that's either, right. They tried to knock Britain out of the war. Initially, they do so by attacking the RAF airfields, by exactly. att- attacking coastal trade. But then in September, as you point out, the strategy changes. So briefly, why does Germany start the blitz? Why do they start attacking cities and
3: bombing civilians? Well, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The fact is that, that what... What Hitler, what the what the Nazis wanted was to bring Britain to heel. So whereas for, for the British people, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz are two very, very different things. They, they, they happened in different places. The Battle of Britain happened over their heads in southern England. The Blitz was an actual attack on their towns and cities on on them. Uh, people became, as is often said, frontline troops. For the Germans, I don't think it was quite that distinction. It was it was an attempt, first of all, the Battle of Britain was the attempt to 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 lure the uh, fighter command of the Royal Air Force up into the air to to knock it out, so that an invasion might become possible. Well, when that didn't succeed, or when when it seemed that hadn't succeeded, they simply changed their focus slightly. They they decided to to to, to attack the cities, and, and and the idea was, you know, partly to to knock out the centres of government, to knock out the the, the location of, of of trade where where supplies came in, but also to to affect civilian morale. The idea was because there hadn't been such a a concerted bombing attack before in history. So the idea was that if uh, sufficient bombs were dropped on a civilian population, then, then, then that population might well rise up against its own government. It might insist on peace being made. It might insist on surrender. So this was a, a change of focus, but not really such a huge change in, in, in German strategy, in German attitudes. It was an attempt, basically, one way or another, to bring Britain to heel, to bring Britain... Under the power of, of of Nazi Germany, and when that didn't seem to succeed by May 1941, that's when uh, Hitler's focus moved elsewhere, moved to the Soviet Union. So the war against England, gegen and came to a, to a, to a halt at that point. Of course, the wider war didn't. The wider war was just kicking off, but the war where Britain and its colonies and its dominions were standing alone—that's where that ended.
4: Now, Josh, I want to pick you up because that's for me the most one of the most one of the most interesting things about the Blitz is. This was the first great aerial bombardment, sustained aerial bombardment in history. So no one knew what was going to happen. Would the population right. rise up? Would the government fall? Would war weariness, or would the economy literally collapse? And there had been a very effective bombing against the Dutch. The Dutch had sort of bowed sure. out of World War Two after about two days, particularly after it was at Rotterdam was very badly bombed. That's right, it? Rotterdam,
3: big attacks so, on Rotterdam.
4: So, so people thought, if you're sitting in the summer of 1940, you think, well, air power is this new thing. Strategic bombing is now a thing. It's never really been done before on, on, a, on a strategic level. This might work.
3: That's absolutely right. I mean, it was, you know, there were genuine fears. In fact, all if you think about it, there had been quite heavy bombing during the First World War, what's become known as the, uh, as the first blitz on, on on Britain with Zeppelins and then Gotha bombers. And... It did seem, I mean, the the British public really were scared by that. You know, there was genuine panic in Britain at the fact that, you know, these bombers were coming over, these airships were coming over, and there didn't seem any way to fight back against them. So that was, a, that was an initial experience. And then there were other, there was, you had Guernica, you had Rotterdam, as you said. And these, even though these were large-scale attacks, they weren't concerted. They weren't over a long period of time. So by the time the Second World War came around, we, we'd had limited, well, my, we, I mean people, had had limited experience of bombing campaigns. And there'd always seemed to be a sense that you know, if, if, if they were cranked up somewhat, then real damage could be done, real damage to civilian morale above all. And so it was completely untested. When the Second World War started, the idea was, it was very common, that when a great bombing campaign began, uh, the civilian population simply would not be able to put up with it. People would be killed in huge numbers. People who weren't killed would be driven mad. And the population would simply insist on peace being made. It wouldn't be able to tolerate it.
4: So how did Britain deal with this massive assault on its civilian urban centres from september 1940 onwards because obviously for those people listening abroad you can't underestimate the importance of the blitz here in the uk it's a word that's entered our language the blitz spirit we survived the blitz you always hear that said after every terrorist attack or after every well so many occasions in our political life and our cultural life we like to think that we sailed through it no problem at all everyone working together and we all summed up the blitz spirit and got on with it how
3: true is that as with most of these things, it's both true and untrue. I mean, it all depends on who you speak to. It depends on the people you're talking about. For those who's, first of all, about 43,500 people were killed during the Blitz. So that's a large number, huge number of people. If you were involved with that, if your family members were killed, if you were wounded, if you lost all your possessions, then the Blitz to you was a dark and terrible time. Uh, But that obviously is not the whole story. Because for for, for many people who lived through this period, they found that their lives completely changed. It was such a time of extremes, I think, extremes in all directions. I mean, people didn't know if they would be alive tomorrow. People were suddenly found themselves living different kinds of lives. These sort of extremes absolutely changed the way people uh, lived, changed the way that people's attitudes to their, their lives, their attitudes to each other, changed the whole sort of tenor of people's lives. So for some clearly the Blitz was a, was a dark event, a terrible event. Uh, for them, Blitz spirit is utterly meaningless. For others who, because of this extremity, found themselves meeting each other, talking to each other, sharing each other's clothes, being in shelters with each other, meeting members of different classes, actually meeting each other for the first time. For those people, they actually have positive memories of the Blitz. And then, of course, you know you have these extremes. I, mean, I, I, have, I, I met one lady who told me a uh, an extraordinary story, being on a bus in London. This was during the height of the Blitz, and she was traveling through, I think it was Chelsea and Westminster, and she was on the bus, and she was at the back, and at the front of the bus there was a man who was on his own, she was on her own, neither of them knew each other. Uh, they heard a stick of bombs coming down. The driver obviously heard it as well. He veered off the route. The bomb exploded elsewhere. He cut back on the route. And while the bomb had been coming down, the man at the front had got up, slowly walked to the back, and held hands with this woman. And then when they were safe, he got up again and walked back to the front of the bus and sat there. The two of them never even looked at each other. They never shared a word. That to me is blitz spirit. That, that to me is, is in its absolute purest form, people coming together, people in danger, people suddenly putting aside all their day-to-day differences and coming together in common cause. And that is what blitz, blitz spirit was. To me, having spoken to a lot of people, blitz spirit was absolutely real. But the extremes, as well as bringing people together, also forced people apart. People started behaving in ways they never had done before. I'm talking in terms of crime. I'm talking in terms of sex. uh, I'm talking in all sorts of different ways, even in tiny little ways. A woman who went into a pub on her own. Before the war, she never would have done that. But at this period, she was willing to do it because why not? People's attitudes change, what people, people's expectations change, what they were willing to put up with, and what they considered normal, all changed. So this was a period where, you know, socially, sexually, politically, criminally, in so many different ways, attitudes changed and we were moving forward to something completely new.
4: You've given us a big sweep there. Yep. Um what about some of the we all we all get taught about in school how altruistic and wonderful everyone was and helping each other yep. out. What about some of the darker sides of the Blitz? Because there was actually a lot of looting. There was yes. a lot of theft, you know, when, when properties were... What, what are some of the stories that we Brits don't like to tell ourselves about the Blitz?
3: Well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, we, we're all people. We're ordinary people. So it's not surprising that given opportunity, things like this happen. So if you think about it, during the Blitz, you had, you had a blackout. Um, so there was instant opportunity. Um, you had police who... There weren't as many police around. A lot of police had joined up and... A lot of their places have been taken by special constables. And police had new roles. They had to show up at, at, at bomb incidents. So they, they found themselves uh, very stretched. You had, a, you had a black market. You had all sorts of new opportunities. And people are people. So we shouldn't be surprised there was more crime. But then at the same time, you know, as I was saying a bit earlier, with, with the, 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 these extremes, suddenly morality shifted. People weren't, didn't mind so much doing things that before they, they would never have done. And in fact, you know, the, the, the wartime regulations came in and suddenly criminalized people. So, so uh, you know, you had the, the, the well-known, you know, turn that light out sort of crimes of people leaving, leaving lights on in the blackout. And you had the well-known sort of food crimes. But you had other things as well, extraordinary arbitrary crimes like, you know, driving a light-colored car or having a car radio. Uh, I spoke to a woman who's you know she, she, her chicken hadn't been weighed before she received it. and so she became a criminal overnight because of that. And this was also arbitrary. suddenly people who had never even considered breaking the law before became criminals. And when when these lines start to blur, then then once again, you have attitudes changing uh, shifting and, and society um, begins to change. But uh, to me, perhaps the most interesting crime. Um, that that I've come across, and one that really seems to sort of highlight the, the extremity of the Blitz is is uh, a man who used the Blitz. He had a small gang, four people, uh, and they they used the Blitz as an opportunity to to break into warehouses and steal safes, and that's what they started doing. They did it as often as they could, and you had this 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 gang who waited uh, uh, in the midst of a Blitz uh, at a warehouse in in London Bridge. And they crept in, they broke into the warehouse and they picked up the safe and they were on their way out during the raid with the safe when a bomb dropped nearby uh, and threw them all up into the air. They were all okay. So they started to run. And as they ran away, one of them, who was known known as Spider, uh, noticed a little girl in a window about three stories up and she was trapped and, and the building was on fire. So Spider sort of shimmied up the building and took the girl in her arms uh, and then tried to find a way down. In the meantime, you had the, the fire engines coming. You also had a policeman coming. And, and they managed to get Spider and this girl down. And a policeman was there at the bottom saying to Spider, you know, congratulations, you've saved this girl's life. You know, can we have your details, your name, your address? We'd like to recommend you for an award. Now, Spider was a cat burglar. Spider, the last thing he wanted on Earth was to give his details. So he just made, made his apologies and made off. And I think this is fascinating to see how, you know, in in the flash of a bomb, somebody goes from being a thief to being a lifesaver. That is this kind of, that's what this period is about, this this intensity, these extremes, the fact that people didn't know what their role, what they were going to be doing from moment to moment. Uh, And it's why I think so many changes were able to come out of the blitz, because people started behaving and thinking differently.
4: Let's uh, talk another... I mean, Hitler deliberately, as I understand it, targeted the East End because he hoped that the the largely poorer people of the East End would rise up against the elite who lived in West London because they were suffering more from German bombs. And and the Queen Mother famously said, when Buckingham Palace was hit by bombs during the Blitz, thank goodness for that. Sorry, the Queen said, thank goodness for that because I can now look the East End in the face. How close... Although we like to talk about in Britain, everything was very socially harmonious, how close did we come to... to real um, public order, perhaps proto-revolutionary incidents during the Blitz.
3: My, my own view is that we didn't come particularly close to, to to that. I mean, I think a lot of people were very disgruntled, and there's no doubt about it, as you say, when the East End was being very heavily hit, and it didn't at first seem as though, you know, any any of the West End, uh, and, and and certainly not the sort of more expensive boroughs, uh, were being hit. Then a lot of people were very very disgruntled. There's no doubt about that but i think we fell far short of what some people feared which was it was going to actually cause a schism in 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 society um i think you know it undoubtedly the fact that the that buckingham palace was bombed and bombed more than once you know bombed a lot was 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 you know in a way in a sort of public relations sense very very good because it did um it 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 did suggest that we we're all in this together and i think the 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 royal family and those advising them were 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 actually probably you know, up to a point, quite pleased about that. Um, but I, I think it, it's a bit of a red herring to say that we genuinely came close to, to, to any kind of popular uprising. It was more a, a, a fear uh, before the war and in the early stages of the Blitz that that would be the case that's remained with us. We know, we remember that that always was a fear. But I think in practice, we were, we were quite a long way from that.
4: I was very struck by that because it's not something that I ever thought about. But then you, you read there were a few instances when a mob, an Eastern End mob turned up at the Dorchester and said, oh, you know, cause trouble. And then also I was reading some letters in the archive the other day from Edwina Mountbatten, so Lord oh, Mountbatten's yeah. wife. And she said they were she was very happy. She was living at Kensington Palace and she made lots of suggestions that they'd be protected there. And I, I thought against too the invading Germans. And I suddenly realized that she was actually talking about. Against the mob, against the people, if society starts to break down under the pressure of German bombardment. So, but I think this is time... more to do
3: with the fear. This is more to do with the fear of, of that happening. That you know, people people became very insecure. People became very paranoid. You know, and it's not surprising. I mean, people who people who had been in positions of 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 power and positions of of, of relative comfort you know, were, were nervous that this was going to, that society was going to upend and, and a period of misrule was going to take over. So so I think it was more to do with fear than actual events. But when you talk about the, what actually happened in terms of the, the mob from the East End coming into the, the West End, they went into the Savoy, actually, it was the it was Savoy shelter that they they took over. And it wasn't actually a mob in quite the the sense that that people think. It was actually organised by a, a communist councillor down in Stepney called Phil Paratin, uh, and 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 it it was quite an ordered invasion. What he did basically was bring a group up from Stepney, and they entered the the Savoy and they went into the shelter, and they basically said, "We're we're not going to leave for a while. We're just going to make our point that that." Um, You know, we don't have deep shelters. Because what he was complaining about at that point was this really interesting idea that the government was very, very keen on... Uh, everybody's sheltering separately. Uh, they, they, you know, the idea of Anderson shelters in everybody's garden, which people were granted, and they built them and they were covered in corrugated iron. And they were actually pretty good, unless you were, were, got, a, got a direct hit. You were you were generally pretty safe in an Anderson shelter. And then later in the bits, they brought in Morrison shelters, which were actually inside the house, big sort of sturdy cages. That you could eat your dinner off and then shelter inside afterwards because a lot of people preferred to, to sit under the stairs so those were where you know people sheltered individually that's what the government wanted that was their policy but what a lot of people wanted and certainly you know before the war and in the early part of the war they wanted these large deep shelters which they considered much safer and so at the beginning of the war the government decided people were not going to be allowed to, to shelter in the underground they were worried that by you know lots of people going into these deep shelters that a kind of troglodyte community would build up where people would would become so comfortable living their sort of dirty lives underground uh, that they wouldn't want to come up again it would become a sort of anti-establishment society living underground and this is you know depending on how you look at it but perhaps it's a it's a rational fear or perhaps it's it's a kind of patronizing fear of the, of, of the working-class mentality. But either way, the fact was that the, the authorities, the government decided that people would not be allowed to shelter in the London Underground. And, you know, I found the Cabinet records of this where the chief of the Metropolitan Police actually says, well, what do, you, what do we do if people come down? Do we, do we open fire on, on our own people? And in the end, that's, it sort of started moving in that direction. First of all, people started buying tickets and just staying down in the Underground. And then after that, people started actually trying to force their way in. So you had this, this invasion of the Savoy shelter by Phil Paratin, And then people started forcing their way down into, I think it was Liverpool Street, and I think Hoban. And eventually, the government decided there's nothing we can do about this. Yes, we don't want people going down. Yes, we want to keep the tubes open for, for essential business, but we are going to have to give in to it. And of course, now, it's 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 one of the sort of totems of, of, of Blitz spirit. The fact that people did go down, people did—you know—a lot of people had a wonderful time down there at the end of the war. A lot of people, you know, particularly older people, been very lonely, uh, you know, hadn't had any kind of community. They suddenly found themselves having these underground communities, and at the end of the war, even when people were safe, they really didn't want to come back up at all.
4: That, that is—that's an amazing—that's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's one of the yeah. great tragedies of our human condition that. It takes hardship and danger and pain and suffering to remind us about what's really important, and actually often people find those some of the most enjoyable experiences of their lives, certainly.
3: Well, I think that's right, and out of this pain... You see, when you talk to somebody who was badly injured during the Blitz, or who lost people, and you, you try and suggest that anything good came out of it, you know, they quite understandably get annoyed about it. I mean, it's it's... You know, this was not a good time. It was a very black time. For many people, it absolutely was. But for many others, they actually found a sense of community for the first time um, but it worked the other way you know I, I found a picture of a, of a badge somebody wore saying I'm not interested in your bomb you know because people the, the great common denominator at this time was the fact people could sit down the rich the poor everybody could sit down and compare bomb stories not everyone wanted to do that some people you know like you imagine many people today were just simply well no I'm why should I be interested in you? I'm I'm the same person I was last year, and I'm I'm not interested. So, all kinds of people behaved in all kinds of different ways. But I think it is true to say that on a much bigger scale than than before, possibly ever before, people from different backgrounds with different attitudes who would never have found any common ground suddenly did find themselves drawn to each other because they were sharing. They were sharing food that kinds of food, they were sharing clothes, they were sharing fire-watching duties, they were sharing shelter, doing all these things. And they were also in it together, trying to win, well, trying to survive, and hopefully in the longer term, trying to win the war. And, you know, so much of it is touching. I found quite recently, you know, all these, all these uh, documents in, in Coventry, to do with the rebuilding of Coventry after that, because Coventry was very, very badly damaged and uh, almost destroyed the centre in in, uh, November of 1940. And it's quite strange that the, the, the Coventry architect, official Coventry architect, had actually drawn up plans for the rebuilding of Coventry in 1939 before the war, but he'd actually stated at the time there's very little chance of this happening because you'd have to tear down large swathes of Coventry, and no one's going to give me the permission to do that. Well, then in November 1940, the Luftwaffe gave him the permission to do that. They they did it for him, and the plans were quickly put in place for the rebuilding of Coventry along his lines. And I I, I listened to this wonderful. BBC radio program from from 1941. Still, when the, the war is absolutely could go either way, you know, if anything was was going against the the British, and and you hear these people being interviewed uh, about what they want from their new houses, and it is so touching. They're talking you know they they want indoor toilets they want places where they can go to shops and and get the shopping centers where they can get everything in one go they want modern appliances they want refrigerators they want it's all so so modest what people are asking for but what perhaps is most to me most moving about it is they're talking about it at a time when really you think they all they would be interested in was the war and and how the war is going to go but but The fact is this was a period when people were starting to think to the future. You know, they were starting to think of of their new lives, of of a new social world, maybe even a new political world, of a time, you know, because people were being brought together, people were thinking in the longer term of, you know, of a closer, more uh, society based around more harmony. And I, I think this is really, once you get deep into it, a very exciting period as well as a very dark period.
1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
4: Were people having sex with each other more than they would have done in the 1930s? Was this the first sexual revolution? It was.
3: I mean, I don't think there's, you know, you can give two sides to a lot of different things here, but I'm pretty clear that this, this was the first sexual revolution. You know, first of all, you know, people didn't know whether they were going to survive. People were living in these dangerous, dangerous times, and so the first thing that goes out of the window is a sense of, you know, why sh- why shouldn't I do this? So that's one thing. Another thing, you had families being split up. You had men away in the army. You had others who weren't in the army who were being sent to, to, to other parts of the country. So you had that. You know, you also had... You, you had this sort of entity coming... Uh, that came into being called... The, you know, people actually started calling them wartime marriages, where people got together for the period. So married people who had husbands, wives elsewhere, who found themselves in close confinement during the wartime period, um, actually came together with these wartime marriages where they were loyal to each other. um, and, And they carried on as though they were in a marriage, but always with the understanding that it would come to an end once the war ended. And I, I spoke to one woman who told me about her mother, who'd been very unhappy before the war, had engaged in one of these wartime marriages in London with somebody who, from one of the ministries who'd come down from Scotland, and was, all, was a much happier person for the rest of her life. And so, so you had all this kind of thing, I think, in terms of homosexuality as well. You had all sorts of doors opening, things, things were suddenly happening um you know, if you talk to if you read Quentin Crisp for example he talks about London becoming one huge paved bed also you know if you think about it you had the the whole sort of pyrotechnics of the war you there's one account i read of a man saying uh you know having 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 sex during during the bombing and saying it was the most intense experience of his life so in all these different ways yes absolutely sexuality was being encouraged and then at the end of the war the government did everything it could to, to sort of place this genie back into the bottle, and to some degree, it succeeded. You know, they they um, they encouraged, absolutely encouraged marriage at the end of the war, encouraged fidelity at the end of the war, and you know, the marriage rate went up, and the the, the explosion in children born out of wedlock came down again. But you know, it was only it, it had been experienced, and when these kind of things are experienced, they don't disappear altogether. And there's no doubt in my mind this was absolutely the sort of bedrock out of which the the what we think of as a sexual revolution of the sixties came, because you know by the time the people who were experiencing the sexual revolution at this point by that time you know they were middle aged they were in their forties and they were in positions of power they had already experienced this and they weren't going to stand in its way a second time.
4: That's very interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Let's go back to the chronology of the Blitz. So. Mm. It begins with massive assaults on London itself. The Eastern particular, the docks of London, let's destroy Britain, the greatest maritime power, the greatest commercial power in the world, still just about at that stage. But then it spreads out to the other cities. Let's not forget. Let's not forget Liverpool. Let's not forget Glasgow, even Belfast, I think. So how did it progress? Was there any logic to it, or was it just different cities, different
3: nights? No, I think there was a logic to it. I think, you know, it's it's, as you say, it started off in London, in in the the docks in London, and also the the, the centre of government in London and the fact is most of the people were you know well, not most of the people but you know, the the largest single civic agglomeration was london so the idea was you know we will attack the area of supply the docks where things come in we'll attack the center of government and we will attack the people the idea being that we you know we will encourage this this sort of breakdown of of morale which will which will force the country to come to terms with us uh, so that was the beginning when you know, by after a few months, uh, it 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 seemed as though that this wasn't particularly working. That's when it was uh, broadened out to 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 uh, provincial cities. That's when, you know, so many of the cities and towns uh, of Britain started receiving these uh, these extraordinarily heavy, extraordinarily terrifying raids. Um, and as you say, I mean, it got to, it got to, you know, Belfast, people often forget that Belfast was attacked. You, you had you had um, Clydebank, you had Glasgow very heavily attacked. You had Liverpool, you had Manchester, you had Coventry. I mean, Coventry was attacked because it was it was where so many of the factories were based. Before the war, these had been car factories, um, uh, automotive factories. But then during the war, a lot of these were, were turned into munition factories. And so that was an obvious place to attack. And, and, uh, and, and so the attack sort of broadened out, and, and and in a way, I mean, that meant the whole country could started to understand actually what was what was going on. The Blitz wasn't just a London thing. Although it's very interesting, if you speak to people today, a lot of people think the Blitz was only on London. You you do you know when I was talking about you know I'm I'm, I'm writing a book about the Blitz, and, and and they'll say to you, oh right, so so you know are you are you are, are, are you just talking about London then? And you say, "No, no, no! It wasn't just London. It was the whole country was absolutely involved in this. And that's why, when you talk about the, you know, the social changes and the and the changes in attitudes, you're not just talking about the capital. You are talking about the entire country. And some really strange bombing raids, where you know, bombs were actually dropped on Dublin, probably by mistake. But but um, you know, Ireland wasn't even in the war. Ireland was neutral. You know, it was a very, very wide scale uh, attack, and it ended." In, in may 1941 but of course that wasn't the end of the bombing you know the bombing raids carried on perhaps not on quite that big a scale for a while but you had the bidecker raids and then of course you had the v1 and v2 raids of 44 45 and had the war continued i mean who knows what 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 hitler had up his sleeve but but so the so the bombing actually did carry on basically throughout the war
4: in this winter of 1940 41 you've got what well, it's, it's all night bombing but well it's part of the very early stuff it's, That's it's right. night bombing by Dawys and Heinkels, is it, and they're dropping. What, what are we talking, incendiary bombs or high explosives? What's, what's but, doing most of the damage? Both.
3: In fact, a lot of a lot of the, the big damage is actually done by incendiaries, because you know initially I think the idea was you know incendiaries were going to be useful to sort of show the path for bombers that came afterwards, and the damage was going to be done by by the high explosive bombs. But actually, what what people discovered and actually discovered. In bombing raids elsewhere towards the end of the war or later on in the war in, in Germany and then in Japan was incendiaries could do an enormous amount of damage on their own. they could start fires on on a really quite horrifying scale and, and, and fires could do more damage when they joined together than than high explosive bombs so you were talking about incendiary bombs on the, on the smaller scale but absolutely not. Uh, causing the least damage. Then you're talking about high explosive bombs. And then during the Blitz itself, the biggest bomb that was dropped was was the landmine. This this absolutely enormous shipping mine that had been uh, adapted to to float down uh, on a parachute. And you know, I spoke to, to one man who remembered a, a, a landmine floating down, and they used to come down very very gently. And he saw it coming down. This was right at the beginning of the Blitz, and he jumped up, uh, thinking that he could catch. He was on the top of a hill. Um, he had no idea what it was, and he saw this parachute coming down, and it drifted off and landed uh, several hundred yards away. Uh, and he'd almost grabbed hold of a of a landmine, which could destroy an entire street. So, you know, people, the, you did have a, a wide range of, of bombs coming down, and as you say, they were dropped from Dornier's, they dropped from Heinkels. You know, the the, the Germans had discovered that the, the dive bombers, the Stukas, weren't weren't really particularly good up against the the, the the fighters. So, so that that was what they used, and they they bombed. Uh, at night. And, you know, enormous number of huge damage was done. I mean, on the last well, night of the Blitz, you had 10,000 houses destroyed. I mean, it's massive, massive, we're talking huge scale.
4: Did the Luftwaffe sort of say to their pilots, right, chaps, tonight we're going to go and hit this supermarine or Vickers factory in Birmingham? Or by the end of the Blitz, they're just saying, we are just going to go and drop bombs on British people who live in Coventry or Birmingham. What was the targeting like? What was the aspiration? The targeting
3: was pretty poor. I mean, there was, they, they were, they were, there was very, very limited ability to target accurately. So, so what they would do is they would send, send people over, they send airplanes over to, to attack a particular city, to attack a particular area, and, you know, sometimes to try and attack particular factories or particular points, but it was almost impossible to hit them. I mean, you, there, there, was no, there was no pinpoint bombing in those days. So, you know, for example, when they went after Coventry, they sent huge numbers of aircraft over. This was the, the heaviest raid ever to that date, and they did damaged a huge number of the factories that were in Coventry. They also completely flattened the city centre. But they didn't do it in any pinpoint way. They did it by flattening um, as much of Coventry as they possibly could. And, you know, what people discovered often, in fact, for the most part, was that, yes, even though a lot of damage was done, even though a lot of factories were destroyed, even though a lot of houses were destroyed and a lot of people were killed, the fact was A, morale wasn't as seriously affected as people had feared before the war and in the early part of the Blitz, and B, the factories could really get back on their feet surprisingly quickly. So, even though Coventry, for example, was very badly damaged, the fact was most of the factories were back up and running in weeks and running to almost full capacity. So, I think what the Second World War showed in terms of bombing was that until the raids could be absolutely huge, as they were on Germany and From sort of 43 onwards, and then on, on Japan in 1945. Until that point, the damage done, although huge, wasn't quite as breathtaking as people had feared. And in fact, the damage was sort of different to what they'd expected. There's there's a very very touching, very sad case I came across, an old Bailey case. I came the records across in the in the National Archive, of a woman called Ida Rodway who who had been bombed out of her house in Hackney, and she was she was an old woman, her husband was, had been a car man, and he was, he was starting to suffer from senility, and their house in Hackney had been bombed. They'd been forced to go and sleep on her sister's floor, and they'd been completely left helpless. And the point here was that before the war, Britain had sort of prepared for huge numbers of deaths. They thought that the death toll would be enormous. What in fact happened was that large numbers of people were left homeless, but not as many people were killed as they'd expected. And they were caught out, severely caught out. So they had huge numbers of effectively refugees, um, and they didn't know what to do with them. They had rest centers where people could spend a night, but they weren't able to rehouse them initially. There was no way of giving them money. People who went to, to centres that had been set up for money were basically treated like, like, um, like Victorian beggars. Uh, they had to justify themselves when, in fact, all they needed was a loan to get themselves back on their feet. So there were all these problems with homeless people. And Ida Rodway is a, a very good example of this because she and her husband were left homeless. They were sleeping on the sister's floor with absolutely no prospects whatsoever, with no money, she was very, very worried. And what she did, instead of bringing her husband her, uh, his morning tea one morning, she went to the kitchen, put a carving knife and slit his throat and killed him. And she, the case came up at the Old Bailey, and she was found guilty, uh, but insane, and sent to Broadmoor. Now, she protested that you know, she wasn't insane, that actually she'd done the only thing she could do for her husband because there was nothing else. No, They were getting no assistance at all from the authorities and there was nothing else that she could do. But she avoided the hangman by being found insane. So Even though that's only one story, I think it's very indicative, and it's much more extreme than most stories, indicative of what was happening in October and November of the Blitz in London, where so many more people were being left homeless than the authorities had ever imagined. They simply didn't know what to do. And in the end, they appointed a man called Henry Willink, who was a Conservative member of Parliament. And Henry Willink just reordered society, basically, in London. He changed first of all, changed the attitude towards giving people money so people didn't have to justify themselves on the old poor law principle. But he also brought in a whole swathe of emergency housing where people could move into. He brought in um, a policy where things were quickly repaired, Uh, He completely reordered society, and he did it on the sort of principles that became the sort of post-war Labour government principles. So, in a way, the roots of all that, all that that we consider to be the welfare state, really came out, I think, came out of this period. And, you know, especially when you consider that the Education Act was put in in motion at this time as well, that allowed all sorts of people, my father included, to go to secondary school and, and further education, and, and then the seeds of the NHS were were sown at this time, absolutely during the Blitz. I, you know, I think it's very, very interesting that this. I, I'm not sure this period has ever quite got the recognition that that it deserves for for the shift not only in people's attitudes but also in the attitudes of society towards its people.
4: Let's also talk about the the long shadow, the Blitz cast on the physical environment, the built environment, the British cities. It's hard here, isn't it? Because modernism, the decline of industry kind of came right off the back of the Blitz. So it's sort of hard to be precise about who caused what. But there are cities in Britain, Coventry, Exeter, perhaps Liverpool, which you could argue never kind of recovered. Or can you from the unbelievable beating it took in that winter of 1940 to
3: 1941? Well, I think that all depends on your perspective with these things. I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, the people of Coventry, you know, they they, they wanted new housing. They had been living in what, you know, really we nowadays we would consider slums and and they wanted something better for themselves to the point that, you know, in 1941, 1942, they were getting excited about what they would have after the war. This was a period of hope. Now, the buildings that were built after the war, we can look at them now and say, oh, you know, these weren't fit for purpose. They were, they were absolutely, you know, they were monstrosities. They were they should never have been built in the first place. Well, that's really, you know, it may be that in 50 years' time, we think very differently about them. And in fact, if we look at some of these buildings now, if you look at the, I think it's called the Parker Estate and uh, in, in Sheffield, which was exactly one of these estates that was built after the war to give people a better, you know, the streets in the sky, to give people a better standard of living. You know, for, for many years, people wanted to tear it down. Now, it's considered one of the great pieces of architecture, and it's being rebuilt, and it, it's it's a, a grade two listed building. So we may think differently about a lot of these places in, in a number of years time. Um, I think the fact is that even if, you know, mistakes were made in the the 50s and 60s about a lot of the houses that were built the fact is that that this period and the bombing that was done highlighted the fact that people did need some kind of improvement in their lives i mean you know during the the first world war a lot of homes for heroes were built a lot of housing was improved the fact was still huge numbers of people in britain were living in slums and a, a lot of people saw this period as an opportunity to sweep those slums away uh, and make people's lives better as a result so you know whether whether that was carried out properly or not, that's really, you know, that's almost a moot point. The fact is, it was seen, the Blitz, as well as a time of darkness, was seen as an opportunity to make people's lives better architecturally and in terms of their housing.
4: So actually, there was a bit of creative destruction going on there uh, as well, perhaps as well. Obviously, I suppose that's the sort of architectural legacy of the Blitz, legacy of it's in the U.K., one immediate legacy of the Blitz is that the Brits then turned around and attempted to bomb the Germans back to the Stone Age, using the same idea of strategic bombing, the hope that people would rise up against Hitler, hope it would bring the war to an end. So that's presumably an important sequel to the Blitz, is it? the British attack on Germany.
3: I think it is. I think it absolutely is. I think, you know, for, for one thing, it, was a, it, it gave the British a justification for doing it. They started it they did it to us, we can now do it to them. Then, you know, you had people, you had, for example, Bomber Harris, who, who, who was absolutely single-minded in his belief that, that bombing could end the war, that it wasn't even necessary to have a ground war. The bombing uh, would do it on his own. Um, and, uh, and so I think absolutely this, this was in many ways the, the sort of precursor to, to the bombing of Hamburg, to the bombing of Dresden, and then subsequently to the bombing of, the, you know, the bombing of Tokyo and the dropping of the atom bombs. And I do think it is quite interesting that, that, you know, with the bombing of – when the real firebombing began, when when you had the firebombs that that took place, for example, in Dresden uh, and and then in Tokyo, you know, that is when bombing sort of, you know, reached its zenith. That's when the fears, the pre-war fears of what bombing could do actually started to be realized, when entire cities were actually being razed to the ground. I mean, I I went to, to Tokyo recently. And when you go, you compare a place like Kyoto, which wasn't bombed at all, with a place like Tokyo, which was absolutely, People people talk about the the dropping of the atom bombs on Hiroshima and and, and Nagasaki, but more people were actually killed by conventional bombing in Tokyo um, than were killed by either of the atom bombs. Uh, So... You know, conventional bombing could be absolutely, you know, horrific in terms of death toll as well. And I think absolutely, I, I, Bomber Habert actually during the Blitz stood on a roof, I think the a roof of um, the Air Ministry in London, watching the bombing, um, and saying, you know, they 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 have, I forget the precise quote, but it's something like they uh, they they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Uh, and you know, quoting the, the Bible, and I think that was all set in motion at that point. It was it was it was kind of inevitable that tit was going to be for tat, and and uh, a lot of people were killed in Dresden, a lot of people were killed in Hamburg and in other places. And yes, I think its roots were in the Blitz.
4: It's an appalling, it's an appalling idea, isn't it? That what began in London in September nineteen forty with a with a sizeable raid against East London within three or four years' time had grown to take the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world and destroy some of the most precious architecture and treasures of societies from Japan to Germany and and beyond. It's an extraordinary story, this. uh, The the use of air power, the use of strategic bombing in the war that goes from dropping leaflets in 1939, the the Brits thought that was the best use of air power, was to drop leaflets, to by the end of the war, unleashing nuclear armaments and wiping out entire... Entire cities, an extraordinary story. Josh, I've taken too much of your time. That was fascinating. Please come back and talk to us on history here another time. Tell people what's the title of your book and where can they get it.
3: It's called The Secret History of the Blitz. It's get it, I suppose, all good bookshops or on Amazon. Exactly,
4: Uh, and the paperback is out this summer. Paperback Uh, out in July. Josh, thank you very much indeed.